Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is John Bush. John is an original Ron Paul revolutionary from way back in the 2000s and has been involved in the cryptocurrency space since 2013. He played a major role in spreading early adoption of Bitcoin through multiple promotional family road trips in which he and his family traveled the country in their converted school bus, hosting meetups, getting businesses set up to accept crypto, and educating the public along the way. John also hosted the Sovereign BTC podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, and since 2017 has been consulting individuals and businesses on how to use cryptocurrency safely and securely to benefit their lives and their enterprises. While doing all this, John also lived in Acapulco for six months during the time the events presented in the HBO documentary, The Anarchists, occurred. He's here with me today to talk about all of the above. So, John, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. For a lot of the listeners, I don't know if they even know there was an HBO series or there is an HBO series called The Anarchists. And when people hear that word, other than our very small group of hardcore libertarians, they may think of turn of the 20th century communists like Emma Goldman and and people like that or the, the guy who shot President McKinley right here in Buffalo, New York. I can't remember his name. But this series was not about that. It was about people like us, anarcho-capitalists, people who are not looking for any kind of chaos or disorder or, in fact, looking for a very orderly society where property rights are protected without the government. And it was about this group of people that some of whom moved to Acapulco, Mexico, put on a conference about it. And as it turns out, you were there. So let me just say this. I thought the series was very interesting. It was an interesting group of episodes about interesting people, but I was left with a lot of questions after it. So how long were you there? How involved were you in the community 
and the conference. Okay, so the first time I went down to Acapulco, I believe it was 2018, and I went for six weeks, and we stayed in a condo in downtown Acapulco, went to the conference. And then the next time we came back for 2019, we actually lived in Acapulco for six months. We came back to the States for a month around Christmas time to be with family, but we were down there and we were most definitely embedded in the community and I became close with close or at least acquaintances with just about every single person that was featured or interviewed in the in the documentary. So for one thing, 2017 through I think right up until this year and ongoing, there's an annual conference. And let's start with that. What was the conference about? How long did it last and what kinds of things would you experience as an attendee? Well, it all centered around Jeff Berwick, perhaps less so than before, but he was the brains and the financier of the conference. So a lot of the conference and the folks that were attracted, you know, kind of were similar to him and his ideology. It was very anarcho-capitalist. And there's a big emphasis on money and wealth and cryptocurrency as well. But really it was teaching people about anarchism, voluntarism, conspiratorial view of history. And then as cryptocurrency began to gain and reach prominence, that became a big part of it. There was even a CryptoPulco part, like a sub-conference within the conference. And so, yeah, that's really what it was. It shifted more into solutions, which is my vein. I'm all about what are we going to do about the problems that we're facing. But I think, you know, the the documentary shows a whole lot of problems and drama. And I think for folks that were just regular attendees of the event, they probably came away enjoying it. And some of the events, especially the ones that we went to that were at the Princess Hotel, like it was a big to do. It was a big deal, this conference, way bigger than most of the other freedom and liberty conferences that most folks are used to. I mean, maybe it would be on par of Freedom Fest, which is a big deal, but it was in Acapulco, a little edgier and definitely more anarchist leaning. So yeah, but you know, being there behind the scenes, uh, speaking at the conference, being familiar with many of the organizers, and then being embedded in the community, it was definitely a different experience than the one that folks that just came to attend received. And I think because it looks good on screen, the producers of the documentary, which I think were completely well-intentioned, and I didn't consider this a hit piece or anything like that, like a lot of people suspected it might be. And a lot of my opinion on that comes from my conversations with Jason Rink, who is a documentary filmmaker and has really gotten me to understand the way a documentary filmmaker thinks, which is I'm interested in this thing. I think other people will be, and I'm going to film it. And then I'm going to try and organize it in some way that it's digestible. That doesn't necessarily mean you endorse or condemn the subject matter. It's just, this is interesting. And I think that's what they did. And so you see a lot of people partying and I, you know, for 20 years, I was at a lot of trade shows, so I understand conferences. You know, you go during the day and there's either educational material or whatever, seminars and meetings. And then at night, everybody parties like they would never do in their own hometown, you know, because it's like a vacation. So there's no problem with any of that. Are you saying that a lot of the seminar, a lot of the activity during the day was educating people on things like Bitcoin? What else? What other kinds of things that would fit into what we think of as an anarcho-capitalist society? 
Well, there was a lot of cryptocurrency, like I said, a lot of wealth building, investment. There was a, some conspiracy talk as well. Then later on in the conference's evolution, there was this whole segment called Anarch Awakening, which was more like spiritual yoga, eating well. As it grew as well, there was a lot of family-oriented stuff surrounding unschooling. Dana Martin was the community organizer, and she's a big radical unschooling advocate, so there was a whole piece of that as well. Just the traditional stuff that you think of, economics, anti-politics, anti-government type stuff, solutions, how we can organize and do things on our own. I mean, Ron Paul spoke down there. Judge Andrew Napolitano was set to speak, but after the big climax of the documentary, which we can get into, a lot of people kind of got spooked. Yeah. So, and again, there's definitely a differentiation between the conference and the community that was there. And I think most of the drama that's portrayed in the documentary surrounded the community that lived down in Acapulco. Yeah. And I wanted to just get people to get an idea of what was going on with the conference, because it is two different things. And I thought where the documentary fell short for me was I didn't understand the so-called community. How many people comprised the community and what made it a community? What made it something other than just people moved to Acapulco? Sure. I should say too, there was plenty of drama associated with the conference itself and issues that played out and even like fist fights taking place at the conference, which was documented on in the movie, in the documentary, which I thought was pretty pretty good examination of everything. And it's funny you bring up Rink. He sure has gotten himself into a lot of trouble with that philosophy on <laughs> documentary filmmaking. Yeah. Poor guy. <laughs> but, but um, you, you know, on, and I said this to him, when you think back to like Truman Capote, all right, we all know who he is because he spent all this time investigating or, or reporting on this murder, this brutal murder of a family. And he actually spent a lot of time with the murderers. Now, I don't know. That was okay back then. Now it's not okay to go shoot film on the guy with the buffalo horns. I just don't get that. But you know, <laughs> I would think anyone would want to know what is with this guy? What makes him tick? He's quite the character. Yeah, everybody's all sensitive these days. But yeah, so the community. So Jeff Berwick, this guy's quite the character. And he plays a focal point in the documentary. And of course, he is the founder and organizer of the conference. He does this website, The Dollar Vigilante which there's a report, financial report, talking about ways to avoid the dollar collapse. And apparently even before that, he had the business helping people get passports and stuff. There's a lot of controversy surrounding all that, a lot of drama surrounding all that. So he decides to move to Acapulco as a bastion of freedom. And because he has a, a large voice with his podcast and his work, he started pumping out like, hey, check out Acapulco. It's a great place to be free. So come on down. Let's let's create freedom down here, right? And so a bunch of people were attracted to that. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that 
plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. And I will say about Mexico, right? My good friend, Derek Bros, he works with me in the Freedom Cell Network. He lives in Mexico as well. He lives in Morelia, which is in Michoacan, quite a bit northeast, northwest of Acapulco. He is also a big advocate of moving down to Mexico. Although, you know, it's a different style between someone like Derek and the culture and, I don't know, just the personality of Jeff Berwick. Derek seems to be more productive. Let's integrate with the local community. Let's come and build, right? And it seemed like the Berwick thing was more of an anti kind of movement, right? And so one big takeaway that I got was the people, this is something I recognized about the Free State Project too, but the Free State Project since grew and matured, but the type of person that's willing to pack up their life and move to Acapulco, there are certain characteristics about that person, right? So if you have family, if you have a career, if you own a home, if you're well-established in a given area, perhaps your birthplace or somewhere where you moved to as a young adult and you built a life for yourself, you're less likely to pack up and move to Acapulco, Mexico of all places. Whereas the folks that are easily able to detach and move sometimes, and this is a generalization, it's not true of everybody, but sometimes those folks are maybe don't have the roots back home, or maybe they burned bridges back home, right? Or they're not well established and more, you know, of a conservative type of life. So in addition to that phenomenon where the people that are willing to pack up their life and move to Acapulco might not be the most stable people in general, I think Jeff and his personality attracted a type of person that may be, you know, conducive to getting into some trouble or having some drama down in Acapulco. And this is something that Jeff even points out in the in the documentary. He says, like, if you come to Acapulco with baggage and problems, the town is only going to amplify that, which is true because, like, it's things are very freely accessible. Party stuff is freely accessible down there. There's a lot of booze. It's a vacation. It's basically a vacation town for Mexico. Used to be a vacation town for Western Europe and the U.S., but since all the drug cartels and all the crime stuff has popped off, that's less so the case. So I would imagine in the community at its height, I don't know, Maybe there's like five, six dozen expatriates that were down there and then like a core group of people that would hang out together. There's different parts of town. There's different crowds. There was already different cliques. It wasn't like everybody was down there and we're all anarcho-capitalists, so we're all friends. In fact, there was quite a bit of contention and different little cliques that formed and one clique was against the other clique and don't talk to this person, blah, blah, blah. So there was actually quite a bit of drama, which was not attractive to me in the least bit, although it sure as hell made for a good HBO documentary. 
And, you know, you said so much there, and I think a lot of people might not be familiar with the expatriate movement within the libertarian movement. And I've been reading Doug Casey forever and also Berwick's blog. I'll stop by there and read that. But people might be saying, well, wait a minute, isn't Mexico more socialist and more authoritarian than the United States? And one answer is, yeah, on paper, in a lot of ways it is, but in practice, and this is something that Casey covers in, uh, over the years in a lot of what he said about where he's moved, a poorer country just doesn't have the infrastructure for the government to enforce much of what it does. So you can kind of go down there to go along and get along. But one of the things he always has said, as if it's like no big deal, is now if you've got a hundred grand, things like that, where I think it is something that a wealthier person has an easier time because just to put it plainly, you can buy off the local officials and pretty much not be harassed as much. At least that's the impression I've had from Casey when he's talked about moving to like some of the South American countries he's lived in. So that I think that was the idea because Berwick says something to the effect of someone says to him, isn't it a failed state? And he's like, well, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> so, you know, that was just kind of a comeback, but that's in the spirit of this idea that a weaker government, you could be freer, but okay. So they all get down there and you might not have people who have a lot to lose, let's say, and that's been immigrant movements throughout history. People who settled this country it wasn't like they were the landowners in England, but so they get down there and to what extent was there any anarchy there? That's what I don't get is I, I'm just getting, they moved there and they all had the same political ideas, but it wasn't an anarchic community, was it? Well, real quick on Mexico, it is. So because there's this struggle between the narcos, the cartels and the gangs, right? And the government, it almost creates this power vacuum or like this gray space similar to how it used to be just a monolithic ruler in the monarchy, right? But then the church started being a force to be reckoned with. And now all of a sudden you had this duality between the state, the monarchy and the church and the Catholic church, especially was its own kind of power center. And there was a struggle there, which created an opportunity for the classical liberal revolutions to kind of bloom up in that space. Similar in Mexico, it's like the state, the federal government, which is very weak in the, in the more rural areas, right? So you got the state and then you have the drug cartels and then there's the, they clash with one another. So it's almost a question of like, Who's the authority? Who has power? Can I pay this guy off, that guy? This guy's actually part of both groups, you know? So it does create an opportunity for freedom. And at the end of the day, like you said, the, a lot of the Mexican people are very ungoverned and it's very laissez-faire. There's very much agorism, like counter-economics within the markets and people trading. But the funny thing is, while the weak, there's a weak central government, the cartels and the gangs come in to fill that void by requiring extortion money of all the local businesses, even the guy that's walking up and down the beach selling little cups of sandia watermelon, right? So there's that. But to answer your question, you know, I, I guess if we define anarchism as existing without the state, there was cooperation amongst the community members. There was trade amongst the community members. There was 
people getting hired to nanny the kids over here and getting and working with someone over there. There was a lot of folks that left their country in order to avoid paying taxes. And so they would do crypto businesses and stuff in Acapulco and kind of live the life of a digital nomad, no longer well, they believed they were no longer subjected to those laws of their home state. So yeah, I would say that it was more so living in anarchy as compared to a traditional run-of-the-mill American lifestyle, single-family neighborhood driving to work every day. And then they weren't paying taxes to the Mexican government. No. And many people, some like the the protagonist of the story, Lily, and John, they were there and they overstayed their visa, right? So you get a six-month visa when you cross the border or you fly in and you're only supposed to stay there for six months. And the way that they get you, though, is when you go back. So if you go back eight months later or two years later, then you're going to be in some trouble. But a lot of folks just go down there and stay down there. And now that they've passed that six months, they technically should try to become residents or whatever. But no, they're not. They're definitely not paying any taxes in the least bit. Let's put John and Lily in the parking lot for a moment, just because of their special circumstances. Just for everybody else, were they all or for the most part running their own one person, two person businesses, or had they taken jobs in the local economy? No, I don't think many people took jobs in the local economy. I think a good chunk of people came down with a stash of money, with some cash. Of course, you can pull money out of a debit card easily too. And it's just easy to live affordably. I would say like every US dollar is worth like a buck 50 when it comes to going to the grocery store or going out to eat or whatever, or rent even. Rent's incredibly low. Like we rented this incredible mansion house with like seven bedrooms, eight or nine bedrooms, each of them having multiple beds. And it was like 2000 US dollars, literally a mansion one block from the beach. So no, I don't think that too many people really worked, got jobs within the Mexican community. I think a lot of them were digital nomads and a lot of them figured out little scrappy ways to provide services to other members of the community. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think of Baba with a girl like you? And then you're saying that mainly they paid rent with just money they had stashed up. So I guess 
where I'm going with this is it doesn't seem it was a, a viable ongoing thing that could exist in between the raindrops of government authority indefinitely. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, we stayed down there for six months and paid rent the whole time. So I created a business at home selling natural health products. And before we went down there to enable us to be there for six months, I sent my products to a distribution center. So it would sell online and they would ship it out for me in my stead. But like I said, a lot of the people were doing a digital nomad kind of thing. So if you have an online business or you work remotely and you can get paid, even if you're getting paid in dollars, you can still go withdraw that money at the ATM. And then, for example, there were many people in the community that were using the crypto platform Steemit, which is a publishing platform where you write blogs and articles and people go upvote your article, basically, and you get rewarded with this currency Steam and that Steam current, this has since been trade switched into a different platform, but that currency Steam could then be converted to Bitcoin. And once you have the Bitcoin, it's easy to sell the Bitcoin to someone for pesos or to even buy services from other community members with, with the Bitcoin. In essence, if you have the right line of work, you could exist there in perpetuity having an income from an external source. I got gotcha. you. So... I guess the other thing that bothered me about the documentary, and I don't know that they specifically said this, they kind of shaped it into this cautionary tale. And it ends with Lily's speech near the end that says, look, anarchy is a very hard lifestyle and it's not necessarily a safe one if you're looking for safety. I guess what I'm afraid people would take away from the series is that the ideas that we have would only lend themselves to people who want to live kind of a fringe, not on the lamb, but <laughs> trying to think of the right words, kind of this alternative lifestyle. And really our ideas are that society should be organized this way. And if you're a plumber or if you're a farmer or if you're, in other words, you don't have to live this Spartan secretive lifestyle. We'd like to see people live first world and better lifestyles with a better system of securing their property. And it just seems like when I got done with the series, I could see the opportunity for people to say, well, at the very most, this is almost like trying to be like the Amish, just separate from the modern world. And that's not the idea at all. I don't know if what I just said makes any sense, but what are your thoughts on it? So I think with how things are right now, for people to live truly free, as an anarchist or an agorist, right? Revolutionary market an anarchism, agorisms where you, you're out, you operate outside the system. To live that way now, you do kind of have to fly under the radar because a big piece of it, of course, is not paying taxes. And so the cost of earning a good income and not paying taxes is some semblance of secrecy. So I think as we transition, there are very few people that are libertarians and living true free lives, right? There's a lot of us that are libertarians advocating and building and promoting and doing podcasts and creating systems, but we're also you know, filling out our 1040 every year, so it's a little less risky. But for someone like John and Lily or others that live down there, you know, if it's easier to be, I guess, 
more pre visible in Mexico. But if you're going to not pay taxes and you're going to make a considerable amount of money here in the States, you're going to want to fly under the radar. I thought the first episode, they did a really good job of explaining some terms, right? Like they talked about anarchism and they differentiated our form of anarchism, which is freedom, voluntary, and it's orderly. It ought to be orderly if it's allowed to exist and operate with you know, Molotov cocktail, you know, Seattle riots, throwing a big, you know, Molotov cocktail at the Starbucks building kind of deal, which I, I appreciated. So I think it's really a transition. And what will precede the actual development of a fully functioning anarchist society where people can earn a good living without forking over 30, 40% of it to the man is the sharing of these ideas. And I agree. I mean, it is a cautionary tale. And a lot of people went down there maybe feeling real confident that I'm in Mexico, there's less order and the laws keeps off my back. You can even bribe, like we've bribed cops down there. It's no big deal. It's much better than going and getting a ticket and having to go to the courts and stuff like that. But I appreciate the cautionary tale aspect of it because there was a whole ethos where like Mexico's safe. It's like, yeah, it's safe, but don't get drunk and act stupid and don't involve yourself in the drug trade and don't go buy drugs from some shadowy dude at a club or whatever because it's definitely not safe in those instances. And I think the story just illustrated the reality of that with someone losing their life, you know? Well, the funny thing is, is that, okay, spoiler alert, this is one of the big moments in the series where John of the John and Lily couple gets shot and killed at his home and, and another of their housemates gets shot. I don't think Lily was injured. And this was a hit by the drug cartels, which would not exist if it were not for the government and its drug laws. So this was in no way a demonstration of what could happen to you in an anarchic society, other than the fact that there was no police to call. But of course, they didn't arm themselves either. So right now, if armed people came to my house it's not like i can call the police and that's going to stop them you know i can call the police and have them run down afterwards maybe so it really that's the other thing from the series that bothered me it's like okay but we're not demonstrating the dangers of anarchy with drug cartels because there there wouldn't be an, an incentive to have a drug cartel if drugs weren't illegal and that pushes the price up so much. So that's one thing. That's the a thing great that's a great point. Just if I could, the whole documentary really followed John and Lily and Lily especially. And just like he said, the reason why they fled down to Mexico is because of the drug war, because of government that put them in that situation in the first place. And then on top of that, like you shared, the existence of cartels, this narco state, the inability for someone to defend themselves having to deal in black markets instead of just white markets, people freely trading, which comes with security, right? That, of course, doesn't exist because of the state and because of prohibition. So a lot of the ills and the struggles and the pain, ultimately, that many of the community members felt, were it was still indirectly guided by the existence of the state. Right. And just to put a, another point on that is, so in our ideal world, well, let's just say in the world we live in today, as I just said, armed people could come to my house. There's nothing the police could do about it till after the fact. So I'm on my own to defend myself against them. And supposedly what the government offers me is this deterrent that those people know if they do that, I can call the police and the legal system is going to come after those people after the fact. So in our ideal society, it would be the same thing. You know, we'd be on our own if something like that happened in the moment to defend ourselves. 
but we would have resources provided by the market to bring consequences to anybody who committed those crimes. So this really would be the same in either case. And all we're arguing is that the market would do that after the fact service a lot better than a monopoly, which is what we have now does. So no cautionary tale there about anarchy, more like just, as you said, a dangerous city right now for lots of reasons. And then the Freemans, and I'll tell you, I got to say, I didn't see the Nathan Freeman thing coming for whatever reason. And that really sucked the air out of me. I was just really, they got me with that. I, I Maybe I'm getting older and more sentimental, but I really felt bad. He seemed like a likable person, first of all, but that really had nothing to do with an anarcho-capitalist society. He had differences with the organizers of the event, and then he just had a drinking problem. I don't know. Is there more to it that you knew about? No, I mean, he was a really good guy and he really got a lot done. He was good at organizing the conference. Like under him, the conference thrived and was the most successful. So, I mean, I knew Nathan and the Freeman family and I didn't actually know that it was, he died from alcohol and his liver stopped functioning, his kidneys and stuff. That was a surprise to me as well. I thought it was like cancer or something. So that's really unfortunate. And I was, that got me as well as a father, just thinking about my kids I was surprised that the filmmakers were so intimately granted that access when he's there on his deathbed. That was hardcore. So, yeah, I mean, I will say that I think that the the filmmakers did an incredible job documenting this real life drama and building these characters. And it's like, of course, it's a pretty big trip when it's such dramatic stories that it gets picked up by HBO. Right. And of course, there's a bunch of people in our community. One person comes to mind in particular that, Ah, everybody just thinks every single thing is a conspiracy, right? And so, of course, HBO, big media, they do have some elements and they control narratives in this way or the other, especially Vice, right? But uh, I think that the filmmakers, when I knew them and had met them, I just thought they were part of our community doing a documentary. I didn't know that they were maybe bigger scale filmmakers and that they had connections to HBO. But I will say that watching the documentary, I think that it was incredibly accurate and they did an amazing job portraying these characters and documenting the real life drama that people go through. And it was interesting how they they met and spoke and interviewed the different people that later on would become different parts of these competing factions, not competing necessarily. Well, actually, literally competing when they put on a conference down the road during the Anarchapulco conference. So it's definitely a really, really a good series to watch for sure. And it's tragic how Nathan passed. Yeah, I really just got to like him and his wife. And that's one of the things when you're making a dramatic series, you want to like the characters and they just seem like people you'd like to hang around with. And then all of a sudden, you know, this tragedy happened. So that, that was terrible. But again, that has nothing to do with the political structure. It's just a personal story that turned out sad at the end. Is there anything else? I want to talk about a workshop that you've got coming up, but is there anything else about the community that you think that the documentary left out some aspect of the story that we didn't get out of the series. You know, I got a good friend named Bruce and he does uh, Agorapulco, right? So Lily did Anarchoforco which was like an alternative to the conference, Anarchapulco. And then later on, as that died down, Bruce started this Agorapulco. 
There's a really cool beach town that we prefer to stay in compared to downtown Acapulco with the Acapulco Bay there, the iconic Acapulco Bay. It's called Bonfil, and it's it's a little ways uh, south, I believe. But it's this cool, chill, laid-back beach town. And uh, every year for the past few years, Bruce has helped to organize more of a decentralized Agorapulco, which is like different venues, different little things, lots of social stuff, but also some conference-style stuff. So that would be cool to be featured as well. But I would just encourage people, the big takeaway, because I've been doing politics and truth, freedom stuff since 2002. And I tell you what, it seems like internal drama has been the biggest hindrance to success. And it always derails progress. And whether it's in person with a group or people bickering online, one thing I've come to recognize is that the people that are busy doing things and building things and creating things and leading movements and leading organizations and businesses, they just don't have time for the drama. So I strongly encourage folks, people that are in our freedom community, liberty community, like if you want to change things in this world, you got to focus on changing yourself first. And if drama springs up, stay the hell away from it and don't get entrenched. And not everyone has to make an opinion on this or that. So that's what I would say. Like, are we in this for some kind of drama show or deceived ego contest? Or are we in this to create a more free world? If, if you believe we're in it for the latter, then avoid drama like the plague because it's the biggest thing that will hinder our success as a community and as a movement. Yeah, I've got to agree with you. I don't know if I'm without sin in that. <laughs> We're all, none of, us none of us are. <laughs> it, it's kind of like sometimes we get to be, you know, the people's front of Judea and the Judean people's front from Life of Brian. I mean, that's really us sometimes. And I think some of it is because we do have principles. We're not just out there seeking political power. In fact, we're trying to dissipate political power. So you get into these arguments and then at the end of the day, you're like, well, what are we doing here anyway? So but you are doing something a little more constructive. And I know that you've talked about some of the workshops you've run before. What is this one coming up on homesteading all about? Oh, yeah. So we recently did the Exit and Build Land Summit. And uh, it was this awesome conference. It took place here in Bastrop, Texas, a rural town just east of Austin. We had 450 plus people attend in person and thousands and thousands watched live online. And the whole idea is to exit the cities and build community in the country and to help people to buy land, whether they buy a homestead and they link up with their neighbors to build community or they cooperatively buy land and literally build an intentional community. I strongly feel our community strongly feels that this is the best way for us to secure freedom, to get out of these smart cities, these left run cities, these technocratic cities. And to go out into the rural country where people are more laid back, where it's easier to grow food, where it's easier to connect and stay away from the state. The state has less influence in the country than it does in the city. And so in promoting this idea, I've come to recognize that there's a lot of people that have self-imposed limiting beliefs. And chief among them is, how could I possibly exit and build? I don't have money. I'm broke. I don't have enough money to pay rent, let alone get a deposit for a, for a down payment on a piece of property or whatever. And so we wanted to put together a workshop to show people that whether you're rich or poor, whether you already have acreage or you're living in an apartment, whether you're an expert when it comes to gardening or you know absolutely nothing, we all can take steps to become more self-reliant, to become more food resilient. We just have to believe in ourselves and have some knowledge in order to do so. So we're hoping to teach people some practical skills 
some homesteading secrets, some tips and strategies. Myself, along with my fiance, Rebecca, will be sharing how we made some sacrifices. We moved into a 399 square foot tiny home so we could save money. We ultimately saved up a down payment and we now we have a 10 acre homestead with a couple community members and we're building an intentional community and where we got the solar panels and we got some off grid stuff going and some food production systems going. We're also going to be joined by Marjorie Wildcraft. She's with the Grow Network. She's an expert on how to grow a whole lot of food with very little input and very little space. We're going to be joined by Paul Wheaton, the Duke of Permaculture. He's one of the world's leading experts on permaculture. He's also very scrappy when it comes to doing a lot with very little. My good friend Nomad Brad, who's on our property, lives at our, at our homestead. Uh, he lives in a converted U-Haul. It's really nice. And he bought it for very little, put not a whole lot of in it, a lot of sweat equity in it. Now he's got this cool house. He lives on our property rent-free because he provides so much value and does so much work to build these food production systems or to take care of the dogs when we go out of town. So he's a living example of how you can live a good life with very little expense. So, And also Nicole Sauce of Living Free in Tennessee. She's going to teach us how to take our excess food and can it or freeze dry it and also how to buy bulk food strategically at an affordable price that'll last for years. So we put together a really great team of people and of course, we got inflation, we got food supply chain disruptions, we got the the green eco-fascists that are making it harder for farmers to do their job and provide food for their countries and for export. So I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, but it doesn't have to be that way for everyone. And so I hope folks will consider checking out this workshop. We priced it much lower than we do our normal workshops, so it can be much more accessible. And it's taking place September 3rd, and I think people that participate are really going to leave feeling inspired and empowered and we're going to show them how they can grow as much food as possible, even if they have very little to start with. I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to it myself because I actually do live out in the country. I have five acres of land, which two acres, the local farmer rents for me to grow food competently. And I say competently because I've had chickens for the last several years, but I took my first shot at planting a garden this year. <laughs> and it's just, it's a comedy. If we were video, <laughs> I would show you how I had this like 10 by six or whatever. And I had the screen to protect it from the chickens. And I didn't understand how big yellow squash plants are. <laughs> and I've got this little shop of horrors thing going in. Now I was eating lettuce out of the garden for, you know, the first several weeks after it started to bloom, but now the squash keeps growing over everything and then yep. nothing gets anything. Sun. So I'm trimming it. Anyway, I think your seminar might be some help to me. We are getting some food out of it, but I don't think we're doing it very well. So it's not as easy as it looks, folks. You probably could use a few tips if you never tried this before. So anyway, we'll have a link to, to that on the show notes page so that people can sign up. Where else can they find all the other things that you're doing? People can check out my business, the Live Free Academy, where we educate people about freedom, cryptocurrency, entrepreneurship, and this whole exit and build strategy that we're promoting heavily. That's livefree.academy, livefree.academy. And people can go to livefree.academy slash email and sign up for our daily email newsletter where we're sharing news and tips and all sorts of events that we're doing. 
And then finally, uh, we recently relaunched the Freedom Cells website. So I, I think I spoke with you on, on your program before about it. We have a network now of over 33,000 people, and it's all folks that recognize the problem, but more importantly, they're working towards solutions, and they're working together with other freedom-minded people to create more freedom, more food self-sufficiency, pull the kids out of government school, learn how to use encrypted communication, get off of Apple and Mac, all that stuff. So people can join the community by going to the website, freedomcells.org, cells like a cell in the body, freedomcells.org. You can register for free, put your skills, put what you're looking for, and then you'll get tapped into a community. And chances are, if you live in a decently populated area, any mid-sized town or bigger, there'll be people in your area that are looking to meet up and work on freedom projects together. Sounds good. We'll link to it all. And boy, John, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. I, I, I posted something on one of the social medias saying, I'd love to interview someone and can't believe you were actually there. Always good to talk to you, though. And good luck with this seminar and your ongoing efforts. Right on. Thanks, Tom. Take it easy. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.